Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. We're putting America back to work, and we're ensuring the forgotten men and women of our country are never, ever forgotten again. Remember the deplorables. The deplorables. We're all deplorables. Who would have thought that was going to turn into a landslide, right? Who would have thought that was going to turn in? That was not a good phrase that she used. Uh, Some things you'd like to have back. President Trump earlier today in Pennsylvania there. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton here with you. Thank you so much for uh, joining me in this extravaganza of uh, analysis, storytelling, occasional jokes, phone calls, all kinds of good stuff going on here. Thank you so much for being here. I think this shutdown showdown, which I know is going to be a phrase that everyone's using, right? It's in the content business. Sometimes you feel like, oh man, the good I've got a good headline. Then you realize, well, everyone's going to use that headline. And then it gets lost in the shuffle of all the different headlines. But it is going to be a shutdown showdown And here's where it stands as of me on air, courtesy of the Wall Street Journal. They just updated this right before I came on to talk to all of you. The threat of a partial partial government shutdown intensified as Senate Democrats indicated they had the votes to block a short-term spending bill, according to multiple congressional aides. The House is expecting to vote uh, late on Thursday on a spending bill that will keep the government funded through February 16th. The Republicans control more than enough votes to pass the bill without Democratic support. House GOP leaders on Thursday were still trying to wrangle support out of the party's conference and said things were headed in the right direction. Oh, my. This uh, this might get a little closer than I had initially anticipated. We'll see. I think I was saying yesterday, my my view is that the nothing substantive really happens, that they don't... Uh, They don't end up letting the government or the government does not shut down. I shouldn't say they let because there's a couple of ways that this could happen. Uh, They're most likely, I still think, going to be pushing for some kind of a a stall on this. And the Democrats are the only uh, the only way the Democrats go forward is either doing that or by shutting down the government and saying that it's Republicans' fault, which has been the plan all along, which is such cynical politics from them, but here we are, that my little phrase that I've used on the show or, or the, the slogan or talking, let's say talking point, that I have been putting out there has not caught on a little bit more is distressing to me, and that is that the Democrats are willing to shut down the federal government, which is paid for and there to support U.S. citizens and permanent residents, they're willing to do that for the benefit of illegal aliens, 
which isn't it interesting when you actually use the term people go oh how could you sir they're dreamers you're such a terrible man mr sexton uh that was a a lady who was outraged that i just made appear on the show uh but the truth is that they are legal aliens. And if being born in this country is enough to confer citizenship, even if you're born and then leave for your entire youth and into your adult life, the absence of being born in this country and, and not having citizen parents and not having, having any other legal tie to citizenship also has to have meaning. Right. It, it, it can't have it both ways. It can't be if you're born or, or always. It can't be if you're born here, you're a citizen. If you come here legally as a kid, you're a citizen. If you just show up later on in life, you're a citizen or you can stay forever. And I, I would just note that there is a whole progression that you can expect here. It, does anyone really think it's going to stop at just the dreamers? Does anyone really think it's just going to be letting them stay and work and just just do the American dream thing? No. All it takes is a Democrat-controlled Congress and a Democrat president, which right now feels unthinkable, but not long ago, right? Hillary was inevitable, and things change. What happened? Uh, All it takes is a Democrat Congress and president to come in and pass an act of Congress to make them all citizens. Could happen. Could happen. And if they're allowed to stay and have legal status anyway, they are likely to be, a, and their children will, will likely be as well, Democrat constituents for the foreseeable future. And this is very obvious. But what I don't think is as obvious to some folks is that this is just the beginning. This is the uh, proverbial camel's nose in the tent, right? This is the tip of the iceberg. This is just the beginning. See this piece today on USA Today, uh, and I wanted to share it with you. It's gotten a lot of play now because of Drudge. It's amazing. Drudge has such a simple model, and yet it is still so effective. I mean, the web the web page hasn't changed since I was in college when Drudge first became my homepage way back when I was in college, and it's the same thing today. Really, I mean, I'm sure there's some changes on the back end, and still very effectively. Drives a lot of the conversation. But here's this piece on USA Today. Uh, The political debate over the fate of dreamers, undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children, has overlooked just how many there are in the country today. About 3.6 million. That number of people whose lives risk being uprooted is not widely known, in large part because so much public attention has been focused recently on 800,000 Mostly young dreamers accepted into the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. The smaller group of dreamers is in the spotlight because President Trump terminated DACA in September, saying it was an illegal overreach of executive authority that can only come from Congress, which is negotiating with Trump. The 3.6 million estimate of undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. before their 18th birthday comes from the Migration Policy Institute. That is roughly a third of all all undocumented immigrants in the country and does not include millions of their immediate family members who are U.S. citizens. Why am I telling you this? Bingo. This is what I've been saying all along. And this is your, your first hint of what is to come if the Republicans buckle on this one. 
if they give in and some of them want to, um, always remember that. You know, Paul Ryan's like, oh, I would love to just give them all amnesty because it's going to help GDP growth. They would love to do that. But what this is telling you is what I've been saying, which is that once you have a DACA amnesty, you will have, regardless of what the law about it says or what the deal is passed in Congress, once it's there and it is codified, it is an enormous opening for other people, other illegals, to use as a means to stay in the country permanently. What do you think is going to happen? So you got 800,000 under DACA right now. What do you think happens when, they, uh, let's just assume, let's play this out. I don't know. Maybe the Republicans and Trump hold the line on this. Don't give in. We'll see. Right? I'm speaking to you in advance of events. I don't, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't pretend to predict the future, although I feel like my analysis is mostly right all the time. But if you have 800,000 that are covered under DACA and they have permanent status in the country legally, right? an act of Congress can do it. Right? If we're going to say we're rule of law or rule of law, guess what? Congress puts something out there, Trump signs it, then that becomes the law. Uh, if that happens, then you will have many other people who will challenge under, and you can come up with all the different legal pretexts in your own head, right? You don't, you don't have to be a lawyer to figure this one out. You know, uh, equal protection. And you'll say, but Buck, they're not citizens. But yeah, but the people that got this protection weren't citizens either. And they're going to claim that it's unfair that some people trusted the federal government and others didn't. And so there's this huge benefit for them. And, and who's going to sort through this? Who's going to really be? And, and once you're once you tell 800,000 illegals, oh, I'm sorry, you were brought here as a kid. Doesn't you know, you, you get to stay forever. Are you going to tell the other, according to this piece, USA Today, big paper, huge circulation, that's pro-DACA, I would note, right? This is not like some right wing, oh, my gosh, look at I'm just pointing out the number to you. Does anyone think that if Congress tells 800,000 quote-unquote dreamers, which is a nice way of saying illegal aliens that fall into a certain age demographic and a certain categorization of illegality with regard to their status, that they're going to tell the other 2.2 million estimated well, but you don't get to stay because you weren't covered under the Obama program. Nope. That is not how this goes down, everyone. That is not the way that this will shake out. I, I assure you that the, the just like they immediately expanded from DACA to DAPA, so the parents now get covered too, they will also want to think about the argument from Nancy Pelosi. Hello, I'm Nancy Pelosi. Right? Think about what she says. And I know it might it might hurt you to think it might be upsetting, and I'm giving some of you indigestion right now if you're eating as you're listening to the show, but the, the case the Democrats will make then was, see, you agreed with us on the ethical necessity of giving these dreamers, these they're better than Americans. They're better than the people that are here and are actually legal citizens, right? They're the best of the best of the best, these DACA people. You agreed with us and gave them permanent legal status. How can you tell this other group of DACA recipients, or rather would-be DACA recipients, that they don't get to stay? If you agreed that coming here because your parents was grounds for being able to stay forever, right? Your parents brought you here. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't your problem. Well, isn't that the case for all these other people? 
Look at the switch. Look at the the ambush that is waiting for Republicans down the line here. Whether it's true or not, you can have a million illegals step forward, and that's a small number who are going to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm DACA too. I just didn't trust the federal government under Obama because he was the, quote, deporter-in-chief. I'm DACA too. Oh, they're going to flood the courts, and then Congress is going to say, look at the mess that's been created here. What are we going to do about this? Well, we already figured out a solution before, right? We know what the solution is. Amnesty. This is the reality of immigration politics in this country right now, my friends. You're not hearing it, you're not hearing it from a lot of Republicans, but this is the way the left plays the game. That is what will happen. The belief that anyone has out there, and I know there are people of goodwill who are trying to, Republicans, conservatives, Americans, whomever, right? People are trying to come up with what the best steps going forward would be on DACA. Just everyone should understand that it is not going to be a limited amnesty for 800,000 people. And that is why DACA as a DACA as part of a, quote, clean funding bill, which is just then holding the Republicans hostage to the Democrat left agenda, even though Republicans are in the majority, is a non-starter. It is a non-starter. The more I looked at this and I was willing to say, well, wait a second, what about a wall? And nope. They can't do DACA. If they do DACA, it's not all over as in the stock market's going to tank tomorrow or, you know, it's not all over as in the country's going to cease to feel like the country in the next year where the Trump administration is done, but it will set in motion events that will forever change the future of this country and, and not for the better. I, I really believe that. I know it sounds extreme maybe to some right now, but because it's part of a rolling program of amnesty and it will be. The, over the long term, it'll be the de facto eradication of sovereignty and borders in this country. That's what's going to end up happening. That's how I see it. I, if you think I'm wrong, let me know. If you think I'm right, I'd love to hear that too. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We got a lot more of us going to talk about the uh, latest with the, the Trump economy. Isn't that kind of fun? It's so good. And some updates on... The GP, Fusion GPS, Dossier, FISA, Warren, all that stuff. Got Sarah Carter joining us with uh, all the latest on that, as well as our friend later, uh, friend joining us later, Guy Benson from Town Hall to talk about what's going on with the shut up. I see it. I see it on Fox right now. Shutdown, showdown. I swear I just popped up on the screen and I knew it, right? That, I, my clever title is now everyone's clever title. I'm, it's, it's too obvious. That's the problem with it. Anyway, we'll be right back, team. strong opposition to this continuing resolution, which is, yet again, a complete abdication of our responsibilities. It is past time for my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to work on a bipartisan spending package that promotes the middle class, protects dreamers, and finally assures the American people that their government is working. I simply will not support any spending bill that fails to do so. Make no mistake, Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the White House. A government shutdown will land squarely in their lap. Yeah, Debbie Wasserman Schultz saying exactly what I would expect you to say about DACA. It's, it's astonishing, isn't it, to see how much the Democrats are, are pushing this issue. Their, their first major policy stand, if you will, against 
the Republican Congress and the Trump administration is for non-U.S. citizens who are in violation of U.S. law. That's just a fact. I, I, you won't hear people speaking about it that way, but that is just a fact. That's what's happening here. You have non-U.S. citizens who are getting more attention, more love, if you will, from the Democrats than any citizens are right now. They, 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 they haven't gone to the mat like this on anything else that I can remember in the last year other than Russia collusion. But we all know that that's nonsense. You know, General Kelly earlier today, White House chief of staff, said that there was enough to avoid a shutdown. Are you confident the administration and congressional leadership has the votes for a short-term funding to avoid a government shutdown Friday? I spent a fair amount of time on the Hill uh, today speaking members of Congress, both sides of the aisle, and frankly, both sides of the Hill, and it would seem that they have the votes uh, to continue funding the military, take care of the child uh, health uh, care issue, and, and perhaps some other things. So, uh, as I understand it, they have the votes, and they're fairly confident. So we'll see. It's going to come down to the wire. Um, we'll see what happens with uh, General Kelly. Uh, I wonder if it is, in fact, uh, a good thing for Republicans to have to fight on this issue, to have to go to the American people, have Trump out there saying they're the ones that shut down the government. And here's why. Here's what this is all about. I don't see how Trump can allow there to be amnesty, I don't see how he could sign anything that's put forward by the Congress. I don't see how the Congress could pass anything with regard to the budget that gives amnesty and and not have a, a real revolt from inside the movement, you know, not have a real sense that what exactly are we doing here? I mean, look, tax, tax cuts are great, but there was a lot more promise than just tax cuts. And tax cuts are temporary, everybody. You got to keep that in mind, too. I'm, I'm not trying to downplay what, a, what an important economic uh, measure that is and, and what a, a real measure of success for the administration thus far. But let's all be very honest about the fact that the, you, know, you could get a Democrat-controlled Congress or at least partially Democrat-controlled soon. And then you get gridlock and maybe you get a Democrat who all of a sudden just all that tax money that you've saved and all the benefits of business. Oh, no. You get Bernie Sanders in there. We've got to take everybody's money. We're going to fund all of the things that they want. Free college, free health care, everything. It's going to be amazing. That's what could happen here. So got to keep an eye on the prize a little bit. Um, I want to also talk to you about... Uh, the uh, economic implications of the shutdown and what, what would happen with the government with a shutdown. Um, we're having a little bit of trouble with the lines here. We're hopefully, hopefully be able to uh, get, because i got a lot of calls coming in, and a little of a tech issue that we'll be addressing here hopefully in the break. Um, but do call. Uh, we'll get it fixed. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK is the number. Also, I uh, live tweet throughout the show. If you want to tell me what you think about what's going on, you got a thought for me, you got an article, you're like, Buck, you got to read this, you got to see this. Use the Twitter. It's like putting out the Buck signal instead of the bat signal. At Buck Sexton on Twitter. So it's fun to uh, get a chance to send me your thoughts that way. Uh, we're going to roll in a quick break here. We're going to be back with oh so much more.
Rockies holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. All right, we've got uh, lots of lines lit. Same, we're talking about the uh, shutdown, showdown, DACA, immigration stuff. Is it going to happen? What should happen? Want to hear from all of you. I have my, uh, as I like to say, I have my concerns. Of course, I, I worry so that you don't have to. Uh, or, or I worry so that you worry even more. It depends on how you want to take that. We get uh, Alex in Stanton, Virginia. Hey, Alex. Hey, Buck. How you doing? I, I, I want to know something I've been asking for years, which is we keep arguing about what we're going to do, blah, 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 amnesty. Why don't we offer amnesty but never the vote? You can stay. You can work. But if you want to vote and become a citizen, you go back to your home country and come in the right way. Okay. Well, why Alex, gonna, what, what do you think is what, what do you think is the the bigger benefit for people that want to be in America to be here, be a part of the economy, be in this rule of law country with all of its opportunities and benefits and all the great op, you know options and everything else, or just to be able to cast the vote. The vote issue is important to Democrats, and it's important in the political process. But in terms of a purely immigration issue, you, you get most of the good stuff. I mean, look, a lot of American citizens don't vote, right? <laughs> you, you, the best stuff is what you get if you get permanent legal residency for most people. And so those are people that would have skipped ahead of the line and been uh, rewarded for lawbreaking, right? So to say, like, well, well they just can't vote. And and by the way, they just can't vote now. They can't vote until Congress says, you know what, we're we're a Democrat-controlled Congress. Now they can vote. Well, I just the whole thing is disingenuous. We all know that the Democrats want the vote. I, I mean, I, I sell auto parts. The, the the immigrants here, they just want good jobs, like you say. They want a rule of law country. They don't want the corruption. I, I'm mixed about the whole thing. I honestly think they should go back and be in line. I, I'm all a rule of law guy. I adopted two kids from South Korea. I mean, we had to jump through massive hoops and pay a lot of money to get them citizenship. It's not easy. I think we have a broken system as far as the legal side of it. But the whole illegal side of it, we've been kicking the ball around. I say we find a reasonable compromise on the DACA people. I don't want them to ever have the vote either. I certainly don't want their parents to be made legal and to be made citizens because that's just a total backdoor, and it's going to encourage a whopload more of this. We're going to have round five, round six of it. But as far as the people who are here, they've grown up here, they've done nothing but speak English, they don't know anything about their home country, that's real. I say let them stay, but they don't ever get to vote. And what if I, what if I told you it's it's Democrats. what if I told you Alex it's th- it's actually three million people that are going to be able to stay, I, all of whom are brought here I illegally? Heard. Nope, I say no. You, you if you didn't join in the program and trust the government, forget it. I mean, listen, we, if we're going to be rule of law, let's go back to rule of law. Let's hold Hillary Clinton to account for mishandling of documents, like is now starting to happen again. Let's be rule of law. And I think Trump and the Republicans ought to say, fine, shut down the government, but we're going to be a rule of law country. Because if not, we slide ever further down the slope and we become Guatemala or something horrible. And, and that is not what you and I grew up in. We're about the same age. We grew up living by the rules. The, the, this country works because we live by the rules. As the rules have gone out the window, we're falling apart. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I just worry about the implications of making some of the concessions because it's never just... It's never just the one time. It's never enforced the way they say it'll be enforced. The only certain, you know, the only certainty when you're talking about immigration reform 
And this is this is true of the Reagan administration as well. The only certainty is amnesty. Everything else is negotiable slash never happens. But let's set the precedent. Let's say, look, we're not anti-humanitarian. If you grew up and the only country you know is America, you've been here since you were four, and the only language you speak is English, you can stay. You can be a productive member of society. We encourage that. But you can't ever vote because you came here illegally. I mean, I... I just, I just don't think penal. I, I don't think that's much of a penalization to say, well, you you can't vote, but you get to stay, pay taxes or not, and you know, it, as the case may but be. At least, but at least you set the precedent for the Democrats. You ain't going to get anything out of this. And 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 we're and if we are hardline about, look, if you didn't sign up for DACA, you don't get it. We're not going to have. We're we're not going to be feeding that incentive for more people to come across the border. Right. But you you heard what I said about the courts, right? They people will challenge us in courts. I mean, you just had a judge. I know, but let's but let's but let's let's not be afraid of the courts forever. I mean, listen, we've got to be rule of law, and let's hold the courts accountable. I know, but you keep let's, telling me you've got. You, hold on a second, Alex. You keep saying you've got to be rule of law, but then you say, but in this case, we're going to waive all these laws for eight hundred thousand people. And let them stay. That's not rule of law. Do you, well, Buck? Do you think we're going to come out of this without some sort of compromise? Do you think we're we're going to be hardline and we're going to but support even, every illegal immigrant? I, I think I think this is very instructive. Look at the way, and I, I think you and I, Alex, see a lot of this ex- very much the same way, and agree on what we want here as as the the long term and what's good for the country. But notice how you're saying, well, let's let's talk, and, and I'm, this is not casting any aspersions on your argument or what you're saying, but Buck, we've got to compromise. The first thing that we're to, the first thing that's going to happen is give the Democrats amnesty. That's supposed to be a compromise. The, the, it's the first thing well, is not. Well, let me well, let me let me predicate that that this deal would require the funding for the wall, and I want e-verify because that's really what's feeding the immigration thing is that we don't have e-verify. So let's have that as part of the minimum standard. If you want the DACA people, listen, the, the Democrats want the DACA thing. Well, if that's the leverage we got, then let's get all we we should get. I want E-Verify. I want the wall and border security. I, I but you know, that, that's that been my position, too. But I would just note that the Democrats have shown zero willingness to do any of that. And and I don't okay. think Republicans have, have pushed hard enough and have made the case strongly enough to get them to concede anything. Right now, all that's being discussed really is does the funding for the government, you know, do, do we extend the, the the debt ceiling? Do we fund, or do we have a continuing resolution for the government? And are we going to do it with DACA or not, you know, with a DACA fix? But notice how they're even calling it a fix. It is right. amnesty. But, but we, it is amnesty. It is not a fix. DACA is not some bug in the system that nobody could have ever foreseen. DACA is a Democrat program that they want to make permanent for illegal aliens. It is amnesty. That is what it is. Right. But, I'm not frustrated with have, you, Alex. I'm just frustrated with the way the conversation is being had in the country. Oh, no, we're friends. No, no, I get it. Yeah, you but get it. We have, one, we, we have one thing different this time. This is a dude in the White House who isn't afraid to be called a jerk and who isn't afraid to stare them down and who isn't afraid of the courts. And it's asking the same question you and I have been asking for 20 years. What the heck are we doing? What is this? This is insane. So now that we have a guy with a spine and a guy who doesn't care about mud and poop being thrown at him, let's stand up, let's back him, and let's hold the line. All right, let's see. I've been hoping hoping he's the X factor, too, in all this, Alex. I'm hoping that Trump and his megaphone will change things. Shield time, my friend. Thank you very much for calling in. Lively lively discussion. Uh, Herb, driving through NJ. Hey, Herb. Hey, uh, Buck, you know, Alex was right on on a lot of points. And uh, let me just uh, um, segue into, um, you know, as I was looking at uh, a couple of the proposals that are out there, 
I, I saw HR forty seven sixty six, and for the life of me, I can't remember if the uh, major sponsor's name is Goldlad or whatever. He's a representative from the Virginia sixth district. Um, and I, I compared that with the proposal from the um, Senate gang of six. And when I when I saw the the Senate proposal, I was appalled uh, because that is um, the worst case scenario, um, uh, similar to the way you've described it, with the three million plus uh, participants getting full amnesty and the whole nine yards. Um, but when I looked at HR forty seven sixty. Uh, it, it seems uh, very close to uh, and in detail um, listing the kind of concerns that I share with Alex um, with regard to um, limited only to current participants uh, in DACA. So that's, you know, uh, less than uh, 700,000 uh, participants uh, and limiting that uh, to a three year uh, extension. Uh, as well as getting all the other things that we need to get this country secure again. So you're and, saying uh, you're saying the negotiation under HR 4760 as it's being it's still I think that's still in progress, right? That hasn't uh, so that that's it, a it, it was just put it was just put out uh, last week. It's pr- currently going through the co-sponsorship process. Right, that's what I mean. It's still Apparently making its, it's way take- through. It's making its way through. Um, it, here's here's what I would say: a temporary extension of DACA in res- in response to or in exchange for a permanent uh, or, or permanent border security and immigration measures would be something that I could live with. I, I but I can assure you the Democrats will again, they will go to the mat on this. They, they think them and I, I'm, I'm all for look meaning and, and they won't go for that. They will not go for a, te- a temporary DACA fix for them is no fix. Right. Because they, they know that that just means that their leverage is diminished. And I think it's important, Herb, for our discussion, for Democrats, this is all about one thing, the midterms. And they think that DACA is the way to energize their base and, by the way, separate out some of the Trump base and and dampen enthusiasm going into the midterms. They feel like if they get DACA, they can take back the Senate. And from there on in, they just stymie and obstruct the Trump administration and try to move towards uh, some kind of impeachment proceeding, assuming they can get that going in the House. And I say, let's dig our heels in and say, look, we're offering you a compromise of what you want. And you're telling us that that's no good. And for that reason, you're going to force a shutdown of the government. It's not the Republicans uh, fault if they go ahead and say, we're going to we're going to bring this to a vote anyway. And um, we're going to vote in favor of either a budget resolution or a continuing resolution uh, much as I, you know, am upset about that prospect, uh, but let's keep things going and and figure out how we're going to fund this government properly, and then let's also do immigration reform properly. Um, and if you're going to vote no on it, then the the government shutdown is your responsibility, not ours. And by the way, uh, I don't think they have enough votes unless uh, it requires a 60 vote majority in the Senate. So the Senate would be the one. The Senate, well, they'll filibuster their refusal. They'll filibuster. Okay, let it. And then, so then, it's their fault for shutting down the government. You, you are correct, but their storyline will be in Herb. Thank you for a great call, man. Uh, drive safe in New Jersey. Um, their their version of events is going to be that the shutdown is Republicans' fault in that 
they were not reasonable enough to do a DACA fix, which I know you're like, Buck, that's verbal gymnastics. That is that is piffle. That is claptrap. And I would say to you, yes, but does more than half the country know that? Do Democrats, with the help of the media, think that they can convince people that even though it is their fault the government shuts down, the Republicans will be held at fault for the shutdown, if you know what I mean? 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Got a lot more on this and also some uh, follow-up to some of the other big stories of the week, including, well, at some point we'll talk more about Trump's health and the way the left has freaked out about it, and also the fake news awards. That's coming up. I've got some updates for you on the Fusion GPS investigation. Here's a little teaser. you got to stay with me through the second hour for this one, though. Are we likely to find out that, and have proof, I mean, because I already believe this analytically to be true, are we, the American people, going to have proof that the Fusion GPS dossier was the basis, was was the start of the FISA application, the counterintelligence investigation, the spying using the United States government's intelligence apparatus and law enforcement, the spying on the Trump administration. Did it all come from that Fusion GPS dossier? I've got a guest who's going to come on who knows details that are not yet public. She's reporting on. Next hour, she says, yes, yes, that is likely to come out soon, to be provable soon. You're going to hear about that. So stay with me. That's coming up in the next hour. We'll be right back. The president's been very consistent. He does not want to shut down. He wants us to go ahead and deal with the immigration issue. And yet he doesn't want to hold our military men and women hostage. So that was the message that he reaffirmed to me uh, uh, again just a few minutes ago. And it's all about trying to make sure that we put up enough votes here in the House uh, to do that. You know, as of right now, there are not enough votes to pass it on the House floor, but uh, discussions are ongoing with leadership, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to a path where we can send it over to the Senate and let them uh, hopefully finish the job. That was just moments ago from Capitol Hill. They're, they're debating this. They got the shutdown showdown in full effect. I wonder... That's going to go to the mat on this one. This looks like it's very possible. Trump, by the way, tweeted out recently, the wall will be paid for directly or indirectly through much longer term reimbursement by Mexico, which has a ridiculous $71 billion trade surplus with the U.S. So he's saying it's going to be paid kind of indirectly, but they're going to pay for it. All right. Well, we'll see about that. Reggie in San Francisco. Hey, Reggie. Um, Hi there. How are you? I'm all right. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, Um, sir. You know, I I enjoy your show, and I do enjoy your analysis. You provoke me into a lot of interesting mind thoughts. But at some point, after one has got all the information and the analysis, you're left with a simple fact of what you do with it. And the bottom line is our side, if I may say so, is incapable of doing anything with it. And I don't mean the people in Congress. I'm talking about the people who listen to your show, as I do. What are we really willing to do to make sure we believe come to pass? It's kind of like one of your, you know, Shields High stories. We are outgunned, outmaneuvered, maybe even numerically overwhelmed. 
And yet we will do and say nothing except on telephone like I am now calling talk radio. Well, a few things, Reggie. Uh, and I understand the the tendency toward political despair sometimes because it does feel like, at least in the recent past, it has felt like Republicans can't get anything done. But to be fair, the tax cuts and some of the economic measures, regulatory measures of the Trump administration in year one are things that I believe conservatives should be and most most are very pleased about and, and are political victories. And then the, I don't need to remind you of Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Right. There are some things to to be pleased about from our political system over the last 12 months. On DACA, though, I agree with you. It is a continuing frustration. Uh, but the first step in doing anything about it is to actually know what's really going on. Right. So this is why I think it's important to get the information out there so people understand. I mean, I think a lot of conservatives, even that I know on this, who think that they're very well informed who are in the media, when I tell them things like it's never going to just be 800,000, they go, oh, my gosh, you're right. They haven't thought about it that way. And these are discussions I've had with people in recent weeks. And in terms of how you how you win, uh, we, we do have the ability right now, we being people listening to the show and anyone across the country, to pressure members of Congress to not cave on this. I think we are at something of a tipping point here on immigration. There is the opportunity for the Trump administration in 2018. I keep wanting to say 2017 in 2018 to put in place measures that would have an appreciable effect on illegal immigration and that would deal with some of the problems, the incentives of illegal immigration going forward. Uh, But I'm not going to pretend that it's easy, Reggie. And I'm not going to say that you're wrong when you point out that a lot of Republicans are just all talk on this issue. But remember, talk is all we can do in a representative in a, in a representative republic when it comes to actual legislation. Right. We we can vote. We can talk and we can try to use the levers at our disposal as, as citizens. And I think that's what we're doing. So don't despair yet, my friend. And in terms of Shields High, part of that means you fight even when you're going to lose if the fight is worth fighting. So don't ever forget that one. Thanks for calling in. Uh, all right, we got, wow, a lot of lines lit, but we got to roll into, uh, I was going to say round two, ding, 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 got to run into hour two in just a few moments here. I don't know, we got a ton to talk about, so just stay with me for it. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We could have a shutdown. We are in the midst of the shutdown showdown, or are are we just seeing a lot of political theater? That's been my inclination all along. I think that's the most likely situation here. I think the, the most probable outcome is that all of a sudden last minute Congress is like, okay, just more funding. See you later. And they just deal with it. They, they, they all live to fight another day, so to speak, or to pretend that they're going to fight another day. That's possible. But there's something else that's looming in the background of all of this immigration reform, DACA talk and border security and all that. Seeing some reporting here about planned ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, raids in Northern California. Now, California, I know you all know that is the single biggest location for illegal immigration, uh, the single biggest state when it comes to illegal immigrants. 
And California is also a sanctuary state now because of Governor Brown. It is a statewide policy to not uh, honor Immigrations and Customs Enforcement detainer requests. And I'd be willing to bet they're pretty, pretty lackadaisical when it comes to passing along to the federal government any information about the immigration status of any of the individuals that they have in custody. So, with that, you have now a report or multiple reports out there of major pending federal government raids meant to sweep up illegal immigrants in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, this will undoubtedly enrage a whole lot of liberals, no question about that, will set California into a, 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 a spiral of despair because they seem to think that federal immigration law doesn't just doesn't really count and shouldn't really be enforced. Shouldn't be enforced at all. Uh, the reporting here says that there will be a sweep of perhaps as many as uh, 1,500 immigration uh, violators, illegal aliens that will be that will be uh, gathered, arrested, <laughs> gathered, will be arrested in this week. And there could also be what's called collateral arrests, where they, immigrations off, immigration enforcement officers, if they find one illegal, guess what? There's other people there. They may say, well, are, are, you know, are you illegal as well? And if they are, guess what? They also may be deported. This is the, the administration. If they do this, and I, I think it's likely they will, this would be the administration showing that, one, this whole state sanctuary policy is a form of lawlessness and it's and it's just not it's not right. It's undermining federal prerogatives and the congressional ability to write the law. Right. But also shows that they, they can step up enforcement. And I wonder if we're going to get to a place here where we have some local officials who go beyond uh, who go beyond just the rhetorical back and forth over sanctuary status to actually obstructing obstructing the federal government's ability to enforce immigration law. Now this is from a CBS affiliate in San Francisco area just hours after the Oakland City Council, voted to end any cooperation with agents from U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Mayor Libby Sheff, I think, or Scaff, I don't know how you say that, said Wednesday she would go to jail if needed in her opposition to ICE raids. Quote, it is no surprise that the bully-in-chief is continuing to try to intimidate our most vulnerable residents. We're very, referring to Trump, obviously, we're very clear that our values are to protect all of our residents, regardless of where we come from. We want to protect families, not tear them apart. Look at this, end quote there, but look at this dishonest language. So I just want to know, does the mayor of Oakland then take the position that if someone were to fly into San Francisco International Airport tomorrow and say, hey, I'm, I'm here on a tourist visa, actually, I'm just going to stay that there should be no cooperation with authorities whatsoever. 
Is there just going to be no enforcement of immigration law? All these people that like to grandstand on how much we need to do for not just dreamers, but illegal immigrants and how, you know, they're doing the jobs Americans won't do all this rhetoric you hear. They should be forced to ask the question, who doesn't get to stay other than violent criminals? And even as we know from the Kate Steinle case and others, even violent criminals don't necessarily get kept out of the country based on these immigration policies that or sanctuary city policies, rather, that are in place. So. As we look at this now, I just want to I just wonder, will they go to the level of obstructing? Will they nullify federal immigration law? It is on the books right now. There are statutes in place, as I have told you, where Congress mandates local law enforcement has to inform the federal government about the immigration status of people in custody. That is a federal law. And. You know, if they're just going to ignore that, and I think we make it to the point where some of them do, and we find that out, then what do we do? You're going to have local politicians and and at the direction of, well, senior police brass, right, the commissioner and others in these different sanctuary jurisdictions undermining federal law. That's what we're going to. That's a pretty scary place for us to go as a country, isn't it? That is not going to lead to good things. But there's really no principle behind this. It's just a lot of emotional impulses masquerading as ethical arguments. Look, I I wish that there would be no ill effects to this country of completely opening our doors and saying anyone who wants to come here just show up. I wish that were the case. It would be nice if there were no downside to that whatsoever, right? If we could if we could just turn America into you know, Noah's Ark for the rest of the planet. Anybody who wants to come, we'll save you. Come here. That would be nice in theory. But it would cease to be America. So that's a big problem. That's a big problem for me. It also is a big problem with regard to what it would do to our economy, the entitlements that we already are having trouble paying for, and the political character of this nation, which is based upon a culture. That is perpetuated by the people who are here and assimilation necessitates there to be a much greater proportion of us, meaning Americans of all different backgrounds and everything else, than new arrivals. If you have too many arrivals, new arrivals too quickly, and if they are not assimilating to the dominant political and rule of law culture, the character of the country starts to change. This, we see it happening in Europe, and it has happened elsewhere. In fact, I'm, I'm going to be uh, talking to you, those of you who listen to the show, uh, the Shields High podcast on Monday, I'm talking about Constantinople and the character of the entire Orthodox Christian world was changed by, yes, conquest, but, but by immigration as well, meaning by the population flows of different people. You had Eastern Orthodox Christians who, over time, were supplanted by the Turks, Seljuk Turks, and then later the uh, Ottomans, a Turkic tribe named for Osman. But this is all stuff you'll hear on the podcast, so I don't want to get too much into it now. But Turkey, for the last thousand years or so, has been a very different place than it was for the thousand years before that in terms of who's there and how it functions and what the religion is and what the state is. 
right? I know that reaching back maybe into antiquity doesn't seem like the most urgent form of making this argument, but it is true. A country is just an idea, really. It's an idea, and it is force based upon that idea. Here's what we all agree on by nature, of, and it's a construct, too. Right? There's, nothing about Amer- there's nothing about America that makes it what it is other than the people who are here. Other than that, it's just you know a lot of land, some natural resources, great and all that, but because of what we collectively believe and what we buy into by virtue of our obligations to the state and, more importantly, the state's obligations to us, and that's really the basis of all this and the individual coming before anything and all else in the law. That's at risk when you all of a sudden abandon not just the rule of law, but abandon the notion that the society has the right to, and I would even argue the obligation, to continue itself, to perpetuate itself. When you just allow massive influx and inflow of I mean, look, people on the left, I'd want to ask them, did the country change with the European with the European colonization of America at the expense of Native Americans? Was it a very different place? I I mean, at some level, we all agree that immigration changes a place. And I'm not saying that immigration is bad or we should get rid of all immigration at all. I'm just saying that controlled immigration is a necessity in the modern world. And controlled immigration has actually been the standard that the history of the United States has been. We're letting immigrants in. Okay, we're going to stop for a while. This whole give me your tired, your poor, your weak, you know, battered shores, all that stuff, poem attached to the Statue of Liberty, that's actually not U.S. immigration policy. And all that stuff came before you could come here and say, all right, now that I get to stay, where's my check? Where are the doctors that are being told that somebody else will pay the bill, but they, they have to treat me? Where's my housing voucher? You know, you didn't have a lot of that in the 18th and 19th century, right? This is all new and different, isn't it? But even still, there is a political existential question about a country that can't enforce borders and does not have the sovereignty to say who can come and go. And if the argument is just going to devolve into people will cry if you don't let this person stay, then everybody gets to stay. And telling me, oh, no, mass murderers will deport them is not dealing with the real issue. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we'll get into some other stuff coming up here, but I just I think this immigration issue is so important. And I hear very few voices out there that are really, and I read very few people that are really getting into this. You know, we're kind of drifting along here and just hoping Republicans will do the right thing and with the GOP, hope is hope is not a strategy, as you all know. All right, quick break. We'll be right back. Fake news better run and hide because the Buck Sexton Show is back. As I said to you, this is a, this is like giving you a. Um, bowl of doggy do, put a cherry on top and call it a chocolate sundae. This is nothing. This is, the, you know, the chip, is, this chip should have been done uh, in September. It's a bowl of doggy do, Nancy Pelosi says. So, you know, this is the, this is the way the Democrats play the game. 
Uh, we'll talk more about this later. We're going to have Guy Benson on to get into some of the particulars of where the debate with Republicans and Democrats on the real, on the uh, debt ceiling or the continuing resolution, all the same thing, where that stands. Uh, but the Republicans are saying they want to reauthorize the Children's Health Insurance Program for six years, okay? And Democrats were like, no, 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 no. And then they got a little heat for it. So now they're saying, no, no, we want it for 10 years. I mean, six years is pretty good. What, what you know, but that's because they had to find out a way to regain, try to regrade, uh, regain the moral preening high ground from uh, Republicans on that. But it's like it's like having dog do with a cherry on it. Dog do. Uh, Jamie in Lakeland, Florida. What's going on, Jamie? Hi, hi, Buck. I have a question for you. Uh with this shutdown and everything, I heard two things. One, that it's only funding for four weeks that we're trying to get an extension for. Correct. And two, that the president can assign which areas in the federal government are to be paid versus not paid. And if that is the actual case, why can't he just say, okay, no senator, no House of Representative, nobody gets paid until y'all figure this out. And why would we be paying for years and years and years and years of these DACA people if it's only a four-week extension? <laughs> okay, a few things. I, uh, I, I mean, the Senate, I mean, the uh, Congress is in charge of appropriations, and we're talking about who's getting paid. I mean, within the executive branch, money that's already been appropriated uh, would be distributed via executive branch guideline, I assume, but you, you need to, Congress has to say, well, this is actually the money to run the executive branch, and they, they will have, under statute, run out of money as of midnight Friday. And as Okay, to, so why don't they stop their pay on, that would save us a whole bunch of money, until they straighten this out? Well, I think they are going to straighten it out, so to speak, Jamie. They're just going to say, okay, we raised it. Bye, everybody. We'll see you in a month. And we'll be here all over again. And it's unfortunate because this kind of brinksmanship doesn't doesn't really get anything done from a policy perspective other than just more of what we're already seeing here. And I would note that there's not really, you know, there's, there's not really going to be much room between now and the midterms to have a substantive pol- national policy discussion when we're all this blah, blah, blah. They're not going to fund the government. And blah, you know, it's just. It's a lot of shiny, bright objects and distractions when we're not actually dealing with the, the core issues of immigration. But, Jamie, I do appreciate I appreciate you calling in. Thank you. Um, right. Mark in Mansfield, Massachusetts. Hey, Mark. And uh, with your OSS fact, I remember the story where you told about how the crowd gathered. I think it was Man of the Moon. We're basically the birth of Team Buck, so I go back that far. Oh, wow. Original Saturday Squad, and you remember the Man in the Moon story. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. You know, I will tell you that my now boss, uh, who is the head, the president of Premier Radio Networks, was present at Man in the Moon and really? saw, yep, she was there because she's Glenn's boss, too, for, for uh, radio. And uh, she was present for Man in the Moon and saw all these people with these red T-shirts with this little Soviet bear with a vodka bottle and an AK-47 <laughs> commie bear on it. 
who I will bring back. I just it's I, I keep saying that I know it will happen though. I just very got a lot of juggling to do these days. But anyway, she and, saw that and was kind of like, "What's going on here?" And that was the first time, as far as I understand it, she ever heard about this character named Buck Sexton and Commie Bear, of course. But, <laughs> but hey, Buck, you know, just to uh, pivot off something you said though, a few minutes ago, the thing that that burns me up is that. Okay, so yeah, they they have the filibuster, but isn't that why we have the nuclear option and reconciliation? I mean, the Democrats, when they have the upper hand, they would fight a guy in a wheelchair with a sledgehammer, not apologize, because the end justifies the means. Why can't these handling note totes just say, look, we have to get this done now when we're you know in position to do it? Which is pass it if it's fifty one forty nine, so be it. Reconciliation, go sit down. You know, Mark, you feel about the with you. It's a great, it's a great question, and it's one that I I return to often. Which is why is it that that there's always this concern among Republicans that some Republicans will break off and side with the Dems on major legislation? You go back to the Obama administration. You go back to Obamacare. I mean, really, from a from the place of of legislation, a seismic movement in the legislative uh, corridors and Democrats were in lockstep with each other. You know, they move like say what you will about them. They are the Borg from Star Trek. They are they are Agent Smith from the Matrix. They move together. They work together. They get it done. Republicans, you know, you got to deal with half-baked flake and the whole rest of the, uh, you know, the the surrender caucus. Graham and McCain, these these guys who are worried about, you know, Bad write-ups in the New York Times editorial page—they're going to pillory them anyways, no matter how how much they uh, capitulate to the to the left. I know it but doesn't matter. They're still going to get they're still going to get tarred and feathered, and they just have to get over the fact that, that you know th- they're getting it done and looking good in the eyes of media. I mean, it's just it's, yeah, they're going to have to take a lot of, a lot of heat, and and they also some of them are going to have to take votes that may. Hey, Mark OSS, great to talk to you, buddy. Uh, some of them are going to have to take votes that could pose problems for them in a uh, in an election and that's the last thing any republican particularly republican so-called moderates want to do appreciate that we got so many lines out here everybody wants to talk about this subject and i certainly do too so uh we'll get into uh, more of this coming up here in just a few moments also uh, our friend sarah carter with whether or not are we going to get proof that the dossier was the beginning of this huge political dirty trick known as the Russia collusion investigation. She's got an answer in just a few minutes. Welcome back, everybody. The The uh, investigation over Russia-Trump collusion and the dossier and Fusion GPS, all of that continues to grind on. Some days, top of the news cycle. Others, more in the background. We've got somebody on now who has been breaking Huge stories on this for a year now. We've got Sarah Carter with us. She is a contributor on Fox News. You guys all see her on Sean Hannity's show frequently. She's also a top investigative journalist and a buddy of mine. Sarah, great to have you on. It's great to be on with you, Buck. Lots have happened today. Yeah, tell me what's going on with the dossier and and where this is all heading right now with Fusion GPS, Glenn Simpson, and these investigations. Yeah, well, on Thursday, actually today, I mean, the House Intelligence Committee voted to make their FISA abuse report 
uh, public to all of the House members. So they were able to investigate this uh, and, and look at it for themselves. So remember, for the last year, the House Intelligence Committee was collecting information and actually putting together a report on what they saw as extensive abuse, both within the DOJ and within the FBI with regards to the FISA. And what I can tell you now is that according to government officials that I've spoken with, people who've been able to review the report, the abuse with regard to the dossier and the FISA warrants was so extensive and so profound that they want to make it public to the American people. I mean, and they're asking for that as soon as possible. Sarah, that would seem to indicate there's at least a possibility that if that information about the dossier, which many of us, I've been saying this just from an analytic perspective for months now, Andy McCarthy over at Nash Review has been saying this and others, it looks very possible, if not likely, that the dossier may have been used as a pretext for abuse of FISA to spy on the Trump presidential campaign. Are we getting indications right now that that could be, I know you haven't seen it, that could be contained in this report? Absolutely. I can tell you from speaking to sources and stories that I've recently published, Buck, that the FISA part of the FISA warrant was based on the dossier, um, which has not been verified. We even know from Glenn Simpson's testimony that they never even verified it, and that's the owner of Fusion GPS. Remember the controversial research firm that was hired by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC to basically uh, conduct an investigation into Trump and Russia. And so what we're seeing now is that there's, they've taken one step, moved one step closer to making this public by making it available to the House members. Now, the House members are bound by this classified nature of, of the document that they reviewed. But I've spoken to uh, Congressman Gates, who was actually uh, just moments ago, who actually said that it has not it, it has not only solidified what he has previously said, that he believes this was such an extensive abuse of power to, to actually remove a president, but it's, it's taken it one step further. And he has called for the immediate release of this documentation to be declassified for the public. I've also spoken to other, other government officials who've told me, look, once this goes public, we can move forward with what we need to do to remove the people who were involved in this out of government. And that means people being fired at the FBI, people being fired at the DOJ, and possibly even criminal charges. We're speaking to Sarah Carter. She's a Fox News contributor and investigative journalist. Sarah, there was a a defense of sorts published by David Ignatius in the Washington Post, and, and he was defending the FBI, which a lot of members of the press seem to be spending time doing now and they have never done it before, and trying to shoot down the notion that the dossier played any role in the FISA warrant or any, any of the counterintelligence investigation and surveillance of the Trump team. And his defense seemed to me to be full of holes And it also looks like the FBI is running out of excuses. They've been stonewalling for a while. The DOJ is going to have to disclose information that they haven't wanted to in the past. You just alluded to this a moment ago. There must still be people then in government that know a lot about what happened here and may have been involved in some of the bad stuff we've been thinking happened. 
Yeah, and that's what's so unfortunate, right? Fortunately, the truth is coming out slowly but surely after a year. I read David Ignatius's piece. Um, I know him. I've known him in the past. Of course, we run in similar circles here in Washington sometimes. He's a brilliant writer. Uh, I think that However, there was so much emphasis from the media for so long to try to prove a Russia collusion narrative that they were blinded by the facts that were right before their face. Uh, when I spoke to another government official about this, this particular question, they said a lot of people in the media are going to have egg on their face when this information is made public. And, and that's unfortunate. I think the most important thing for us to do as journalists is to look at all the facts. And, you know, even the fact, I know David Ignatius wrote a lot about Christopher Steele, that his work with MI6, the British intelligence agency, was well known, that he had he basically covered Russia for most of his career. Uh, so there, there were some things, of course, we don't want to dismiss that. We want to look at all the facts. But there has never been one fact in that dossier, other than the fact that Carter Page went to Moscow, other than the fact that Vladimir Putin really didn't like Hillary Clinton, both of which is open source information, there was never anything in that dossier that the FBI could come out to Congress and say, look, this is a provable fact. Let's make this available to the public. And neither in Congress, Senator Dianne Feinstein was asked the question. Um, Adam Schiff, of course, takes his own direction. But I remember Senator Feinstein very clearly stated on numerous occasions she never saw anything in that dossier that was verified. So there's going to be a lot more questions and answers, Buck, when it comes to this dossier. And a lot of people are going to have to ask themselves, you know, what was my role in this? Was there disinformation in this dossier that was being fed to the media and being spread? Because this is not just a national issue for us as Americans. This is a global issue because it affected the, the whole first year of Trump's presidency. Another good point to make is that after the people reviewed this, House members have gone into a skiff to review this classified information. They actually said they won't even see why there is a need for the special counsel to continue its investigation after this is made public. So that's very interesting to me. I am desperate to see these documents uh, in whatever form, uh, and I'm hoping, as I've been told, that by the end of the month, this will be made public. Is there any is there any future in which we could think that or that, that theoretically this stuff could all just be kept under wraps or are we going to get some transparency here? I think we are going to get transparency here. I have been told that they are moving in that direction. Um, you know, the majority voted on party lines today. I mean, on the party line, the Republican majority to, to make this available to all House members. Of course, the Democrats voted against it. Um, and I think you know, for good reason. They probably don't want this to get out to the public. It kind of squashes the narrative that they've been pushing forward. Uh, and, and so I believe that there is going to be another push to make this public. It will become public. And I think it'll show not only exonerate that, you know, people like Devin Nunez, who were really under the thumb of the media for so long, uh, but it'll show what's been happening inside our government. More importantly, what we need to do to change that so it doesn't happen again. Sarah Carter, investigative journalist and Fox News contributor. Real quick, Sarah, uh, your next piece, can you give us a preview or is it uh, super top secret? Oh, no, I just gave you a little bit of the preview right now. I'm, I'm one of the few people that knows how extensive um, the the 
concern is among members of Congress after reviewing uh, this classified report, and I'll be posting something shortly on that, and people can go to sarahacarter.com to read my story, and uh, of course, I'll, I'll be on Fox News tonight on Sean Hannity's show, and uh, we'll be discussing that as well. Sarah Carter, everybody. Sarah, keep doing what you're doing. You're the best. Thanks so much for making the time. Hey, thank you, Buck. Anytime. Team, we're going to roll and do a, a quick break. We'll be right back. Stalin is the second most dangerous person in the 20th century. He killed more people than anyone except Mao Zedong. Um, to compare him to an American president is such an absurdity uh, that uh, Senator Flake probably could get a job in uh, at CNN or somewhere else as a reporter because it, this whole Trump derangement syndrome, Trump just seems to have this effect on people. The fact is, nothing Trump has said is particularly stronger about the press than things that Lincoln would have said, things that uh, FDR would have said, things that Ronald Reagan would have said. Uh, strong presidents often get really angry mm-hmm. when they have reporters who they think are being inaccurate or prejudiced or unfair. I got to agree with the former Speaker Gingrich here, because I said it yesterday. He was on last night after the show. I mean, half-baked flake really needs to get a grip. Uh, it's like he's Stalin. It's like I'm just so upset at how Trump is destroying America because he's like Stalin. Uh, no, he's not. And anybody with any grasp of history, history would say that that's completely insane. But I got some breaking news for you. While we're on, it's always fun to break news on the show here with you. Uh, I see this courtesy of uh, Ainsley Earhart over at Fox News. Uh, House passes short-term spending bill to avoid government shutdown. Yeah, I think they're going to avoid it. I think they're going to they're going to avoid a shutdown. They're just going to say, "All right, all right, I got an idea. Let's just let's just do this. Let's pay the bills. Let's all go home." They're not going to they're not going to fight over this one. Um, but now keep in mind it only means that they push this down the uh push this down the road for 4 weeks. But it is yet another instance of it, it, assuming that it happens that way, another instance of the theater of DC first and foremost, over taking any real action. And I am uh, not going to be surprised at all if, if, in fact, we find out that they were just, oh, yeah, like I said, remember yesterday in the bar, hold me back, hold me back. I, I, I want a piece of that guy. You only say that when you got like four people pulling you away, right? Then, then everybody's a hero. And that's kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans in Congress right now. There's not really much... Beyond that, but speaking of fighting and fighters, I was I was happy. You had Lindsey Lindsey Graham, who not so good on immigration lately, but at least he's willing to stand up for Trump on this one. You could be dark as charcoal and lily white; it doesn't matter as long as you're nice to him. You could be the Pope and criticize him; it doesn't matter; he'll go after the Pope. He's a street fighter. It's not the color of your skin that matters. It's not the content of your character. It's whether or not you show him respect and like him. And if he feels like you're off script, you don't like him, he punches back. And as president of the United States, the only advice I can give you is that the street fight's over. I'm sorry. I thought he was defending him there. I misread that clip. He was kind of like, it's kind of a backhanded defense of, of Trump. He's saying he's not a racist, which he's not. But he's also a street fighter and needs to stop being a street fighter. Wrong, 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 Lindsey Graham. The moment Trump stops being a street fighter, it's all over. 
The moment Trump is like, yeah, you know, let's just let the let's let CNN, MSNBC, and the New York Times run the news cycle however they want. Let's let them present the facts to the public with the spin that they want, and and not take the fight to them in the way that we uh, have been in this administration so far. It's all over. I mean, look what the media did to to George W. Bush. You remember that? I mean, they they just hobbled that presidency. They did everything they could to convince the public that the big story they ran with forever was that George Bush was so dumb. He was so dumb. That's what they were always saying. Became this big national joke. He's so dumb. I I spoke to the man on several occasions. Not dumb at all. Um, but they that was the big myth. Like the big myth now is Russia collusion. The big myth under the Bush administration was that Bush was so dumb. But Bush wasn't a fighter the way that, you know, Bush tried to be a gentleman most of the time. Occasionally he let it fly a little bit. He had some salty comments, but he tried to be a gentleman. And, and they did not reward him for that at all. They did not give him any grace, any grace period, any anything for that. Uh, they they went after him with everything that they could, no matter what it did to the country. And as you know, it was during a time of real imminent peril for us, a time of war. I completely disagree. I'm, I'm again. I'm sorry. I, I had uh, I had misread the 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 verbate, the little transcript under that Lindsey. I was like, oh look, Lindsey Graham stand up for Trump, saying he's not a racist. Yeah, he said he's not a racist, but then he went on to say that, well, you know, he only likes people who are nice to him, which I kind of understand. That's the thing about Trump. You know, what what you see is what you get, and, and that's really refreshing, I think. He gave a great speech today in Pennsylvania, too. He did a really good job with it. And I am I am so sick of, and this is maybe a bit of a digression. We'll come back to, a, well, I'll give you an update here on all of the shutdown drama in just a few moments here. We'll have Guy Benson joining with the latest to tell us what's going on there in the world of politics. But just, I, I I've... I think a lot of Americans feel this way. We're all so sick of listening to politicians give speeches where they, they all think they're like the second coming of Cicero and they're all making the same hackneyed, uh, you know, hackneyed allusions to the speeches of, of Kennedy and Churchill and Lincoln and, you know, speaking about issues in the same way, the same kinds of poll-tested, inoffensive commentary that's not going to really, you know, rattle anyone's cage. and everything. It's just, it's not just boring, it's worthless after a while. And we had so much of it. And you saw the the opposite end of the spectrum with, with Obama's speeches where he would say the most platitudinous nonsense, the most, the most worthless uh, blather, from President Obama in the form of a speech. And people say, oh my gosh, it's brilliant. And with Trump, he'll be like, you know what? America's a great country. And I love this place. And uh, we're going to do great things. And I really want to help the American worker. And we're going to really hold the government to results. And we're not going to overspend. We're not going to overregulate. And and the media's like, oh my gosh, he's stolen. And they wonder why we don't trust them. And, you know, keep in mind that the generation that controls the media right now uh, are the same people that really broke the trust, right? The, the, the top echelon, so to speak, of the mainstream media on the executive and the, quote, talent, end quote, side of it, right? People that are on TV and that have the big platforms of the newspapers and everything else. Uh, they were the ones that dis- that really destroyed the trust that the American people have in, a, in the notion of a nonpartisan media during the Clinton administration. And that's why 
And so now they've just made their way up the ranks and they're running things. They're getting paid all these big fat salaries because the legacy institutions and media that they work for. And that's why I love that Fox News is running a, uh, a Lewinsky seven-part series, I think, starting this Sunday. Just a little reminder for everybody as we go into all this. Just a little reminder that uh, they, they, they did all this, right? They set all this in motion. And, you know, you can say that Trump is a response to the Obama years, and that's certainly true. But in a lot of ways, Trump is a response to the media's complicity, to borrow a word the left likes to throw around, in the Clinton years and in the uh, Clinton administration and what they were willing to do, the subversion of the truth for a political agenda as a collective effort of the mainstream media. Clinton was, when they did that in a way that was so blatant and that we could know about it and do our own research because of the Internet. You know, So thank heavens for all that. At least there's more truth getting out there now. So I, it looks like uh, the ho- yeah, House... House has put forward a spending bill. So there you go. And we're going to talk to Guy Benson here in just a, a few minutes about what that means and what it's looking like in the in the shutdown showdown. The final shutdown. Uh, and then also going to be uh, talking to you about, oh, another, another media disparity thing. Just because we're having some fun with that today. Hillary's health uh, versus Trump's health. As in how the media viewed one story, how they viewed the other story. Here's a hint. One of them is like not fair game at all. And the other one is the most interesting story since Watergate for a few days. I'm sure you can guess which, but stay with me for that. All right, everyone. The shutdown looms. What can we expect? What is the latest on all this? And and what would it mean? We have Guy Benson with us now. He is the politics editor at townhall.com. Also, a Fox News contributor. Guy, great to talk to you. Happy 2018. Hey, how are you? Happy New Year. I'm good. I'm good, man. Tell me what is going on with this shutdown showdown. Well, uh, just moments ago uh, when we were taping this interview, uh, NBC News put out a tweet quoting senior Democrats who were bragging that they have the votes to shut down the government, prevent the Republicans from passing a bill to keep the government open. Um, So... (laughs) There are some apparent issues potentially on the House side. Mark Meadows and the Freedom Caucus are saying that they might have enough votes to block the Republican majority from passing the short-term continuing resolution, uh, which also would include a six-year extension of the children's health care program, CHIP. Uh, But House leadership saying that they do have the votes to pass it with only Republican votes. Democrats are all lining up to vote no uh, because they're trying to make Republicans' lives as difficult as possible. Uh, Mitch McConnell does not have 50 votes yet among his own caucus for a continuing resolution. Um, the math there is complicated by the fact that John McCain is also not in the Senate because he's at home uh, trying to fight his his sickness. So at the moment, you have some questions on the Republican side, and then Democrats sort of gleefully out of one side of their mouth, blaming Republicans, saying Republicans control both houses of Congress. How can they blame us? And then out of the other side of their mouth, boasting to reporters that they have the votes to filibuster a bill and block um, a, a spending bill that would keep the government open. So um, the the outcome of this remains unclear. I think that there are plenty of people on both sides who don't want to see a shutdown. Uh, but we do a lot of brinksmanship in Washington, D.C., and it seems like governing by chaos and crisis is 
kind of become the norm. And here we are again. Guy, for everybody listening, the mechanics of this, the parliamentary procedure aspect of what's going on here. I mean, I know I've been getting emails from folks saying, hold on a second. Republicans have the majority in the House. They have the majority in the Senate. Obviously, the White House with Trump. Why is this so hard? And I want to pose that question to you in, in terms of getting the votes, filibuster. I mean, what are the different yeah. ways that this can you know, hit the rocks? Well, just procedurally, if the Republicans so that the Democrats in the House, their only power really is to jam up the Republican majority. So what they've decided is that they're going to vote en masse against a government spending bill that does not do the things that Democrats want. And including, by the way, that would extend CHIP for six years, something that Democrats have been screaming about. This would be a, a long-term extension. They want to vote against it because DACA and other things, that ancillary issues. Uh, so the way it could get jammed up in the House is if the Democrats lockstep no votes plus enough dissatisfied Republicans, potentially the right-wing contingent of the Freedom Caucus who are saying, we don't want to do a short-term thing, we don't want to um, – give away as much as we're giving away, that could add up to problems for Paul Ryan to wield a functioning majority. Uh, so that's one way that. So, but so that would, they only need 51 in the Senate, right? And they just have to pass it in the House. No, it's filibusterable, uh, if that's a word, in the Senate. Well, that's what I mean. Ab- um, absent a filibuster, they would only technically need 51, but it can be filibustered if they don't get to. 60. Right. Yeah, and and the Democrats are saying now they're out there telling NBC News and other reporters, we have the votes to block 60. They're they're basically saying they can filibuster the bill. Um, They have the 41 votes that they need to filibuster the Republican spending bill. Um, That would keep the government open. So those are the two ways that it could get blocked. If the Republican majority in the House has enough Republicans breaking off for different reasons, obviously, than the Democrats. So they don't have a majority in favor of the spending measure, which is still temporary anyway. Um, And then if the Democrats decide to filibuster in the Senate, which they are now not only threatening to do, they are saying they have the votes to do it, while also saying it's the Republicans' fault. So they could fall short of the majority that they need, or they could get filibustered. So there are two pitfalls here that Republicans could have trying to keep the government open, assuming that that is their goal. Uh, uh, we're speaking to Guy Benson, everybody, politics editor at townhall.com. And check out his latest at townhall.com. Also, you see him on Fox News all the time. Guy, uh, the CHIP program, can you just tell everybody, how does that factor into this? Children's Health Insurance well, Program. Yeah, it's the, the, the Kids Health Program. That's a bipartisan program. has been authorized and, is, and renewed for many years as a bipartisan consensus. Um, there have been arguments over the last number of months about how to fund it, how to extend it, where the money comes from. Republicans in the House have voted a number of times to extend it uh, for years, and the Democrats always vote no uh, because they don't like the way it's paid for. Um, And so what the Republicans are doing here is saying, okay, we want to do a short-term spending bill to keep the government open, and as a sweetener for the Democrats, or at least to make it harder for them to vote no, uh, we're going to add a six-year Previous iterations have been four years, but they're adding a six-year extension to the CHIP program, and Democrats apparently are saying, no, that's not good enough. We also want DACA, which I think is unrealistic. There are, there are still conversations going on and negotiations about the Dreamers and the DACA issue with that deadline not until March, uh, but that's the, the left-wing base wants the Democrats to uh, basically stand up 
and shut down the government over the Dreamers. And it's it's an interesting about face where you now have the parties in different positions where Republicans were talking about shutting down the government over Obamacare funding. And the Democrats said that it's literally, you know, the end of the world if the government shuts down. Right. Republicans are Hitler. And, and, yeah, the hostage takers and arsonists and all the all the words. Um, and it's so, so reckless and terrible to shut down the government in order to try to extract policy concessions. And now the Democrats are threatening to shut down the government to extract policy concessions. The only difference is they feel confident that this will all be blamed on Republicans, which shutdowns generally are. Uh, because of, A, the media uh, who go along with it, and B, also I think the American people look at the Republican Party as the government skeptical party. And so it kind of makes sense that if the government's going to get shut down, that the party that loves government wouldn't be the ones doing it. But in this case, um, at least a significant amount of the blame would be on the Democrat side uh, if the government shuts down, which is still a big if. I think they might get this thing worked out over the next whatever it is, 24, 30 hours. Um, there, there's also some division on the Democratic side of things. There's a bunch of Democrats who are not saying that they're going to rule out voting for a clean continuing resolution to, to kick the can down the road for whatever would be a number of weeks. Um, so I, there, there's enough moving parts where I don't think confident predictions um, are in order. If you had to guess, though, Guy, at this point, the the best percentage uh, that you could give me on the likelihood that government does not shut down, what would you put it at? Well, here's how I'm going to avoid that question, Buck. I'm going to say this. <laughs> um, there's a part of me, and I've, I wrote a piece about this a few months ago when there was another potential shutdown fight. And remember when the government shut down, it's, and it's a partial temporary shutdown, it's not a real shutdown. Uh, but we call it a government shutdown. When that happened under Obama, and also when it happened under Clinton, what the administrations did at the time was make it as visibly uh, painful and inconvenient as possible by saying, what about, you know, we we need to pay our troops. Uh, What about NIH funding? What about, you know, keeping national monuments open? What about Social Security payments? Um, and sort of the parade of horribles of what would happen in a government shutdown. And then they went out of their way not to prioritize you know, priorities, frankly, uh, in order to say to to, to sort of. Right. The Obama administration the made the shutdown worse than it could have otherwise been. Oh, like on purpose. Yes. Specifically on purpose for political reasons. I do wonder that let's just say hypothetically the government does go into this partial shutdown. Would it be interesting for the Trump administration, the Republicans to say, OK, um, we don't want the government to be shutting down. The Democrats have, have forced this to happen. But as long as we are in this partial shutdown, we are going to do everything in our power to do the opposite of what the Democrats do during shutdowns. We're going to prioritize and put at the front of the line paying the troops, NIH funding. We're going to keep the monuments open. We're going to uh, prioritize Social Security payments, basically do exactly the opposite of shutdown theater to sort of teach the American people Um, Since we might have these fights for many years, teach the American people that shutdowns under Republican administrations, um, strangely, are not the end of the world the way the Democrats try to paint them when they're in charge. I wonder if there's a teachable moment. uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't I haven't thought through the entire strategy of that, but it's at least a thought experiment that's worth uh, considering, given how the how the politics 
of these shutdowns typically cut against Republicans? Uh, is there a way for them to sort of flip the script a little bit? Guy Benson is a politics editor at townhall.com. Check out his latest there. Also follow him on Twitter at Guy P. Benson. Mr. Benson, great to have you, sir. Come back soon. Thanks, Buck. Sounds great. Team, we're going to roll into a quick break here. We will be back with much more. Stay with me. Every day we see how reckless and careless Trump is. One year into Donald Trump's presidency and the world's approval of U.S. leadership has plummeted. Do you think Donald Trump is racist? I do. I think that uh, Donald Trump himself is a dangerous neo-fascist in the making. Oh. I have no doubt in my mind the, the market tanks. Some of those jobs of the past are just not going to come back. Just like he shouldn't have his finger on the button, he shouldn't have his hands on our economy. So there you get just just a taste, everybody, of what some of the leading lights of the Democrat Party have said over the last year or so. Some of those at the very beginning of the Trump presidency, others, uh, others of those comments are much more recent. And isn't it astonishing to wake up, you know, in this country right now where there's so much good stuff happening? I mean, the, the economy is just crushing it. I'm seeing people who are very knowledgeable and often quite skeptical of the, you know, the growth of the stock market and improvements in hiring and jobs and wages who are saying, look, yeah, the debt, the debt is a problem and we've got to deal with that. And but for the next year or two, things are looking like they're going to be great. And I've been telling you this for a while and the disconnect between what you hear from the media about this presidency and what the reality is of your life, what affects you, what allows you to uh, pay the mortgage, pay the grocery bill, pay for all the things you need, uh, have a little bit of a of an easier time running your business, a little less likely to you know get jammed up with federal regulators I and mean, all these different things. And depending on the specific industry industry you're in, I could even cite what Trump has done that would be helpful to it. And Apple, with this massive investment that I mentioned yesterday in the United States, big cash bonanza coming our way from overseas, repatriation of capital, all this great stuff is happening. And you got people going on the media that are, or, you know, that are either in the media or that are put on TV as, as experts or whatever. And it's like they're living in an alternate universe. I mean, you really have completely disparate visions of America going on right now, and it's like nothing else I've ever seen in my life. You know, during the during the Obama presidency, you yeah, he was it was very progressive, very left wing, and we got used to the the bowing, the apologizing for America, the uh, the, the the lectures to those of us who are paying taxes versus those of us who are net recipients of federal largesse, right? I mean, we, we got used to a certain approach from the federal government under, under Obama, but I had no illusions about what was happening. And I was like, well, you know, Obamacare is not going to work. They say work the way they say it is. And, and the, uh, the policies abroad of the Obama administration are going to embolden our enemies. And we're going to have a, very weak hand in negotiating with regimes that that respect strength and action and decisiveness. I, I knew all that was going on. I, I didn't think that Obama was about to, you know, round up everybody in 
uh, you know, FEMA camps or that Obama was going to just shred the Constitution and seize power for an additional three terms or, you know, and you see this from and look, I know there are always people that say crazy stuff. But when you look at what is mainstream among the left, among the hashtag resistance as to their narrative of what's going on in this country, it's crazy. What do they have to say about the economy? I mean, they're so incapable of just saying, you know what? Yes, the increase in wages and the 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 big boost to hiring that's that's happening now, and all of the economic momentum and optimism that's happening is a good thing. They can't admit it because, well, they were saying that the market was going to crash. They were saying Trump is a fascist. They're saying Trump is going to run the government into the ground. All the things that they were telling you from the earliest days of the Trump presidency are being proven to be false, and that creates only two options for them. Increasing desperation of lies and smears and distractions and delays and all the other stuff that they're currently doing, or modification of their views, acceptance that, you know, on some things they were just wrong. And they just have been wrong up to this point. You'll you'll notice that none of none of Trump's harshest critics on the left and the Democrat Party have come forward to say, you know what, I still disagree with them on a lot of stuff. I still disagree with them on a lot of stuff, but some things have gone pretty well. They can't even concede that. They won't. They are so dug in to a hatred of the president and a hatred of everybody who is around him in the White House that there's just a complete and utter break with the reality of what's happening day to day in our country. So it's astonishing to see. And that's why uh, Trump doing the fake news awards, I thought was particularly, particularly funny. Uh, it's just goading them. And I I wish more people would make the argument that I did yesterday because I really do believe it's important. And that is a president with the entirety of the media covering for him, cheering him on and in his back pocket, which was the case with Obama, is much more dangerous to free expression than a president who has 90 percent of the media against him, but is at least but but is willing to, you know, fight back, push back, call them out. And that's I would think the I mean, it's not even the balance we should have because it would be more like 50 50 would be nice in terms of the media's approach. But. They're telling us now that we have to worry about the destruction of the free press and the First Amendment. You've got prominent journalists who point to regimes around the world because these people, look, a lot of journalists, I hate to be the one to break this to you if you don't already know it. And I know basically all of you already know this, but a lot of journalists don't read many of what you call books. They're, they're not what you would call knowledgeable. They spend a lot of time getting their hair sprayed and trying to look a certain way, trying to sound a certain way and make sure they play office politics. So, you know, they get the big anchor job. Right. A lot of a lot of anchors out there are pretty dumb. I'll just say it pretty dumb. And they refuse, utterly refuse to look at the history of what's really gone on in this country over the last year or just. Over any historical period, it's all about what is advantageous to them in the moment. Whatever's advantageous today, that's the storyline they run with. There's no historical perspective whatsoever. There's no ability 
uh, for them to put together the past and the present in a way that doesn't, beyond all else, privilege their own professional concerns, right? Whatever helps the guys at CNN, MSNBC to get get more ratings today, push push ahead their agenda a little bit, that's what they're going to say. And that's just why the, the clash with reality right now is so profound. Uh, the disconnect between what is happening in the country and what is being reported. The stuff with the president's health, right? Only with the media the way it is right now, the way it's constituted in this country, could you have People quibbling over whether the president is 6'2 or 6'3 when you have the lowest unemployment in 40 years. All right. We're going to roll into a quick break here, team. I'll be uh, back in just a few. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. If you wish to call in, we'll be right back. The doctor certainly has taken on the life form of other life forms inside the Trump White House. He, he sounded like a sycophant. He didn't sound like a doctor. The doctor rhapsodized about Trump's vision, his stamina. He has more energy than just about anybody. And Trump is very sharp and very, very articulate, very, very sharp, very intact. Absolutely no cognitive or mental issues whatsoever. The president did exceedingly well. And then they said, well, but he is borderline obese. To which the doctor said that if he'd eaten better over the past 20 years, he might live to be 200. I'm sure this guy's great guy, great physician, blah, blah, blah. He shouldn't have sounded so Trumpian. Joe Scarborough's a jerk. He's a jerk. That was a that was a whole a whole jerk fest right there. It's just a guy acting like a, a complete imbecile and a clown, uh, wildly overpaid to do a very uh, small audience show on MSNBC. I would note, but there you have another person in the media who has taken it upon himself to decide that he's going to overrule what is said here by a doctor. There you have Joe Scarborough, who has decided that an MD with who has served as, as doctor to previous presidents, very respected in his field, is being too Trumpian. You know, maybe the doctor felt like it was for the good of the country to put to rest the comments by idiots like Scarborough about how the 25th Amendment is necessary to remove this president for office because of mental deficiency, because of senility, because of whatever the case may have been, right? Whatever it is that they're going to try to say. Well, maybe the doctor decided that it was good for all of us to be able to move past the smears and the lies and the nonsense uh, offered up by a psychotically anti-Trump media apparatus, uh, of which MSNBC is a large piece. But I would also note that the, and just a little comment, little snide comment there about borderline obesity. I mean, I hope a lot of Americans out there, because, you know, myself included, you know, a lot of us are technically in a place where, you know, should, should drop a pound here or there. And, you know, so, yeah, we're not, we're not perfect. There are guidelines about weight. He's saying he's borderline obese. I think the president's doing just fine, thank you. I mean, you got Joe Scarborough, uh, who you know fancies himself a, a rock star in his off hours. He's just a joke, and you know he should maybe focus on his own on his own house a little bit in a lot of ways. Joe Scarborough's out there fat shaming the president, 
as though that's analysis that anybody should really hear. I would just note that the look at the difference, and people have been pulling this together in the last 24 hours, and we pulled together a montage here. Uh, but look at the difference between the fascination with every aspect of Trump's health and and trying to poke holes in an MD's analysis versus the way that they responded to Hillary basically passing out in front of a whole bunch of reporters and everybody else and having to be dragged into a van, if you remember, during the election season. Here is how that went. Trump also questioning Clinton's health, which appears to have zero basis. We looked up Hillary Clinton illness and we found multiple articles debunking these wild-eyed lunatic conspiracy theories. So a urologist went on Hannity's show to pass judgment on Hillary Clinton's mental state of mind. Why are so many Trump surrogates fueling these rumors about Hillary Clinton's health? So you'll notice that it was like a big meanie thing to do, such a meanie that Trump was to bring up Hillary's health. That was just so incredibly beyond the pale as she was being dragged into a car. And then they said she had walking pneumonia and they had all these different things. And you also had Hillary with the glasses before that and people talking about the possibility that she had had a concussion and what does that really mean long term and everything. Just no honesty here at all from the media. I mean, the, the reason that we don't care when they run these different stories about Trump, the reason that a front page article about Trump and and, you know, this or, or, or that dalliance real or alleged or whatever it may be with Trump in his past. You know, I've seen this thing with the people are talking about a, an adult film star, all these news stories everywhere. The reason a lot of us just say, you know, we, we don't care, we don't want to hear it, and we don't believe them is because they have no standards. They only have an agenda. We ha- they have no ground truth, no integrity in the media. It's just about being advocates for a side. And the side that they're advocates for is, well, you can just get it. it's It's progressive. It's collectivist. It's uh, places the group over the individual it is about victim uh, victimology and about identity politics and about uh, the eradication of traditional uh, Judeo-Christian values in this country. That that's what they're pushing for, and and everything is toward that goal, right? The, the reportage they do, the news stories, is toward, so that's how they don't feel bad about questioning Trump's health and making excuses. Or why they don't want to question Hillary's health, because it's all to a bit. They, they see a bigger purpose here. Right? The the progressive agenda sits well above their integrity, their journalistic standards, everything else. And that's why they have no pangs of remorse over their grotesque dishonesty. That's why it will continue and why it is so refreshing to have Trump fighting back against it, calling it out, and just taking the fight to them. Look, I, I'm i somebody who sits here before you, and I was I supported Trump once he won the primary. He was not my first pick among all the different Republican candidates. I supported him during the primary uh, right away and was very happy when he won, but I had my concerns, and I am so uh, pleasantly surprised by how well the first year has gone in many ways. And... The fact that I can sit here and say that to you, I'm just happy because it's good for the country. But meanwhile, you know, Joe Scarborough is going to call the president fat because Joe Scarborough's a jerk. 
Oh, we're going to get to uh, some roll call here, so uh, stay right there. Well, it's time to close up shop here in a few minutes in the Freedom Hunt. Thank you so much for uh, being here with me as always. An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. I'm doing my last-minute uh, research, pulling together notes for the upcoming uh, podcast, Shields High, on Monday, the fall of Constantinople. And I'm just, I'm st- there's so much that I am looking forward to talking about on that podcast, and then also in the after-action shows we're going to be posting next week. I'm glad that many of you, see, it's great. I get to, I get to put ideas out there to you, and it's like I'm crowdsourcing, but I'm crowdsourcing an idea to the wonderful and and brilliant and thoughtful patriots who listen to this show. And so I get back all this amazing, amazing feedback. And so I'm going to do some of those follow-on shows next week, and we'll see how those do. But I, I'm looking into uh, doing uh, the deep dives into the research. And these are books that I've read in the past, but I'm now looking at notes in the margins, rereading certain chapters to make sure I'm really as as up to speed as I need to be to do a a solid narrative of, of events for the, well, in this case, the fall of Constantinople, and but a few things. One is I just don't know how we could, without being there, how you could ever really imagine what it would be like to be atop the walls, the Theodosian walls, with uh, everything on the line and being able to see the battle with that kind of view where you have tens of thousands of Turkish soldiers and, and artillery and trying to batter down the walls. To have that view of a battle all at once like that, to be 60 feet up and on the walls, uh, it would have been an amazing and, and terrifying, but an, an unbelievable sight. And I just am struck by that as I was reading about the fortifications. And one of the big parts of the show on Monday will be a discussion or not a discussion, I'll go into some detail about how the fall of Constantinople was also really the the big event that showed the end of uh, fortified high walls as a defensive mechanism that would be impervious to uh, ass- most assaults, right? They've always been able to take castles and fortresses by siege, but with the advent of gunpowder, Having really high walls all of a sudden was not nearly as uh, as effective as a fortification. Um, so that's one part of it that's just, I, as I'm reading about the walls around Constantinople, it's pretty amazing. Uh, the intricacy and the fact that they lasted for hundreds of years. So you'll hear more of the details about that on, on Monday if you download the show. And then also just the system of succession in the Ottoman court. So... The Ottomans never thought of themselves as Turks, which is very interesting. We, meaning the Westerners, Christians, called them Turks, and they called us, Western Christians, Frange or Franks, and they called the Byzantines Romans because the Byzantines thought of themselves as the inheritors of the Roman Empire, which is, I think, lost in most of the... Uh, that, that context is lost in most of the historical conversation whenever it comes up about... Uh, the Byzantines, and they never would have called themselves Byzantines, by the way. That was a later addition to the lexicon. Uh, but it, it is uh, amazing to me that the succession in the Ottoman court involved, I mean, I, may, I mean, amazing in the way of being horrified, right? Like it is, it literally inspires a sense of, of dread. Uh, 
that they would murder all possible competition, including small children. And that would happen right away. They would keep the death of the sultan a secret. And then whoever moved first, it's very Game of Thrones for those of you who are Game of Thrones fans. Whoever moves first has the advantage and goes and tries to to kill off, in some cases, siblings, in other cases, half-siblings, many cases, half-siblings, as fast as possible. And there are stories about the Ottoman sultans or of the Ottoman sultans in the past uh, presiding over what was essentially a procession of tiny coffins out of the palace after the uh, murder of small children who could have been a threat to succession. And the, the whole Ottoman Empire was is, is a fascinating subject, and the massive slavery it, it engaged in, all, so much of this is lost. So anyway, I'm excited to be looking into uh, more of this and, and get a chance to address so much of it with you on Monday. I think it will be a lot of fun. Uh, with that, Team Buck Roll Call. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. At some point, if you think that gets silly, let me know. I kind of like it, though. So we've got messages coming. And by the way, I I do appreciate all the messages about the history show. But, you know, the the radio show, too. Let me know about that. Uh, That's that's also something that you should be letting me know what you think about. Uh, Jeffrey, with that said, Jeffrey writes in, listening to you discuss the podcast of Shields High, I'm wondering, when I listen to it on the Buck Sexton Show page, does that get counted? They are great, by the way. Well, Jeffrey, yes, uh, they do get counted that way. But I would uh, ask that, if you don't mind, subscribe to the Shields High feed as well, because in the future we may be putting some stuff in the podcast feed on iTunes and elsewhere for Shields High that does not go into the general Buck Sexton show feed. This is the crazy new digital world of content we live in, but uh, we're, we're, we're working on that. But please do. Uh, let's see. We have Lace writing in the following. Hey, Buck, I'm listening to your show last night. And you're currently talking about double standards between Democrats and Republicans. I would like to hear your current thoughts about the situation in Missouri with uh, Governor Eric Greitens. A woman came forward stating she had an affair with him in 2015 and he allegedly uh, and allegedly he blackmailed her to keep quiet during the election cycle. Currently, both sides of the political aisle are requesting him to step down as governor. Until 2015, he considered himself a Democrat and switched to the Republican Party. Uh, I don't know if this is Lace or Lacey. Pardon me if I got your name wrong there, but I don't. I'm actually not familiar with that story, and I'm not going to be that radio host that goes, "Well, I've got a lot of thoughts on that," and you'll hear those thoughts in a few moments. But now I'm going to switch topics before I give you the thoughts. I actually am not familiar with that story, so I'd have to go check it out. But uh, I'm going to guess Lacey. Thank you for sending me that uh, update on, or that question rather. Gene uh, writes in. Uh, Just listening to last night's show, you spoke of whether our reps are just in it for the spotlight or actually do any work. Check out this website. You sign up for alerts for your congressman, and each time a vote is held, you get an email and see what the vote is. Also, it explains the bill which was voted on. You will quickly see that the Senate is not into voting on anything that the House sends them. I live in a blue state and have written to my Senator Warren, uh uh-oh, On several issues on upcoming votes, generally I will receive a long-winded, blathering email several weeks later, which may or may not have anything to do with the issue I raised. I have passed this on to friends so they can be informed on exactly what the people we send to D.C. are up to. Shields high, uh, Jeannie. Uh, That is, uh, what is this, countable 
SendGrid. I don't know. i got to figure out what this website is. I'm a little confused. But, Gene, thank you for raising that. And I'll look into this website that can send you updates on what members of Congress are doing. I'll uh, get a couple more in here. I suppose tomorrow's Friday, so we got a Freestyle Friday, and we can do some action movie quotes. Or I've wanted to do war movie quotes, too, which I feel like are usually a crossover into the action movie quote genre, but that's just a thought. Uh, so what else do we have here? Brandy writes in, uh, I am so excited to hear more history lessons are coming. Nobody really does this with the exception of Glenn Beck. Thank you so much, and keep up the great work on radio. Love your show. Well, thank you, Brandy. Oh, she also wrote in, yes, please do tell us the history of propaganda. Um, That's a project that I want to work on in a little more detail, Brandy. I can talk about it on the show, and I know I mentioned it a little bit yesterday. Propaganda, I told you the origins of it are actually from within the Catholic Church, and it had to do with the continuation of official doctrine to propagate the doctrine of the Church. So it was like an office for indoctrination of those that were supposed to go out there and spread the gospel. Um, you'll notice even saying indoctrination for in some cases can have a, a slightly, it can have a negative connotation. And it was in the First World War when the mass media opened up with radio in particular that you had the ability for governments to spread messages. It was really advertising from the government to the population, and in this case about war, war and warfare, and you really saw it come into fruition, the notion of government propaganda, with the way during the First World War that the Germans uh, were demonized as the Huns and the, uh, the pictures used, because also there was a lot of uh, visual aids in this process. The pictures of the Germans were showing them as, as you know, menacing, pillaging, evildoers. So that's where you start to get that sense. And, and there was a lack of honesty uh, on both sides when it comes to the government's representations of what was going on in the war. And it was all justified under, well, you know, we need to win. So we need to tell people what we think they need to know so that we can win. And from that 20th century uh, legacy of government messaging efforts or, you know, war um, information and and warfare, uh, that's what I mean by that is, Information warfare, <laughs> why I separated those two words. But that's where you get propaganda. So uh, with that, we're going to get ready for Freestyle Friday tomorrow. Uh, please do share the podcasts, including the Buck Sexton Show, everybody, uh, which is what this is, with some friends. We love when those numbers go up. It uh, helps the Freedom Hut grow. Already excited to join you tomorrow. Hopefully we'll have some uh, interesting stuff to talk about with regard to the shutdown. And until then, as you know, shields high.